Good morning. It's good to see you today, and we hope that you find yourself blessed by being here this morning. We're looking forward to studying God's Word, even more focusing on Jesus Christ. And I hope that you've really enjoyed this series of studies that we've had over the last month. This, our focus has been honing in on Jesus, on who Jesus is, on who Jesus is to us, what He does for us, what He means for us. He is our Redeemer. He is and was God with us. He is our Advocate. He is our example. And today we're going to be talking about Jesus Christ, our life. And uh, as you saw in the reading, which I apologize for the logistics problems there. I'm not very good at multitasking, apparently. Uh, but as we're looking at the reading this morning and we see the words of Jesus we notice that Jesus points to the fact that he has been given life. Just as life is in the Father, he says he's also given the Son to have life in himself. And what does that mean to us that Jesus is our life? And I, I want to start by talking about the Gospel of John for just a moment. Uh, as we look into what are called the synoptic Gospels, and they're just called that because they give us a synopsis of Jesus' life, a summarization of the things that he did. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is fascinating. There are only 13 total references to eternal life. And then we get to the Gospel of John, and there are 40. And, and that tells us something about John's Gospel, doesn't it? That John's Gospel focuses a lot more on eternal life than these other three Gospels. In fact, if you look at the first letter that John wrote, the first epistle, 1 John, which is only five chapters, ten times in, that, in those five chapters, John again refers to eternal life, whereas in Matthew with 28 chapters, Mark with 13, or with 16, and Luke with 24, only 13 total times. So as we look into John's gospel, he ends the gospel. Uh, this isn't the very end of the gospel, but this is chapter 20. There's 21 chapters. He says, Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now listen, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John says, I wrote all these things in this gospel so you could believe on Jesus. Why? So you could have life through Jesus Christ in his name. So as John writes his letter, this is the application of the facts of his gospel. And, and in this letter that John writes, he says, this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Amen? We've been given eternal life through Jesus Christ. Now listen to verse 12. This is really important. He who has the son has life. And he who does not have the Son does not have life. These things, what things? The whole letter. Everything he wrote in the letter. These things have I written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now here's what John tells us. I wrote all these things so you could know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And I wrote all these things so that you believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you could have life through his name. And I wrote these things so you could know that you have eternal life. And so I want to ask you this morning, do you know whether or not you have eternal life? 
And how do you know? How do you know? Well, John said, that's why I wrote what I wrote. So you can have confidence that you have eternal life. And no one has eternal life apart from Jesus. You know, that's why Christianity is so controversial. You're not going to get that out of a lot of religions. You're not going to get this exclusivity of only Jesus. Only life is here. Only salvation is here. But that's why Jesus is so offensive to people. Because Jesus said, only life is in me. That's the only place you'll find life. And you know, when it comes down to it, when we all stand before God on the day of judgment, the only thing that will matter is whether we have Jesus or we don't. That's it. That's all that matters. Because that will determine whether or not we have eternal life or we do not. 1 John chapter 1, as John starts this epistle that he wrote, he says, That which from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. And you notice the New King James capitalizes the W in the word, word. Why, why do they do that? Because this is exactly how John starts his gospel out. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he's not talking about the Bible here. He's talking about Jesus Christ is the Word of life. And he says, we saw him, we touched him, we handled him with our hands. And he said, the life, Jesus, was manifested. And we've seen, and we bear witness, and we declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father, notice, which was with the Father, was manifested to us. Now, he's not just saying that God told us about eternal life. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is life. He is eternal life. He's the manifestation from God of eternal life. And he says, we've seen him, we've heard him, and we declare it to you. Why? That you may have fellowship with us. And truly, he says, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So here's another layer. I wrote this so you could believe that Jesus was the Son of God. You could know that you have eternal life and understand what eternal life is because eternal life is in Jesus. And we touched him. We saw him. We know what we're saying is true. And here is why we want you to know this. So you can have fellowship with us. Now, we use the word fellowship loosely a lot. We say we're going to go down to the fellowship hall and we're going to fellowship, right? We use it as a a word that means we're going to interact with each other. But that's not what the biblical word fellowship means. It means participation in or a sharing or a partaking of something together. What are we partakers of together? Of God and His Son Jesus Christ and of eternal life. Now you either have fellowship with God and the Father or you have no life, right? Amen? You have fellowship with the Son, and whoever has the Son has life. And if you don't have the Son, you don't have life. That's very simple. I like things simple. That's very simple. And so here's why Jesus is the key to eternal life, because he has the power of eternal life. He has the power of life and death. And notice in our reading from the morning is in John chapter 5, 28, Jesus says this, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those that have done good to the resurrection of life and those that have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation or damnation, as the King James puts it. This is why Jesus is so important, because when Jesus comes back, the Son of God will speak. He will speak, and every lifeless body that is buried, every body that's decayed and turned to dust, life will enter in that body, and everyone will come forth, and they will be judged. And when did he say that happened? Sometime in the future. It's going to happen in a day, in an hour, he says. 
The hour is coming. When will that be? I don't know. You don't know. There's some suspicions about that, but we don't know, do we? Paul wrote about this in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. He says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. And I want you to hold on to those two words, fallen asleep, because we're going to come back to that in a moment. He said, Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. There are people that live in this world today that do not believe in eternal life. You know what that means? They have no hope. No hope after death. Death is the end. It's a, it's, a, it's, it's a finality. It is the finale of life. You die and you're dead and there's nothing afterward. A lot of people believe that. And Paul says, I want you to know you don't have to sorrow like people that don't have hope because we have hope. And he says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so will God bring with him those who, here's that word again, sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, that's Jesus, with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God and a dead in Christ will rise first. Now listen to verse 17. Then, which, then we which are alive or who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Now we're not going to go into great detail on all this, but I, but I want to make mention of something here. There's this idea of a rapture. Where does that idea come from? Well, the words caught up mean rapture. And so there's an idea of a rapture that all of a sudden... People are just going to disappear just in a moment. All the saints just disappear and everybody else is left behind. Now, does the Bible teach that? Absolutely not. You know what the Bible teaches? That everybody who's alive and everybody who's dead is going to go up all together. That's what he's saying here. We're going to all go up together. We're not going to precede them. They're not going to precede us. Jesus is going to come back just like he said in John chapter 5. There's going to be one day when Jesus returns and he speaks and everybody that's dead will arise. And then those who are alive will go up together with them in the clouds all in one day. It's one event. And he said that is a great comfort. You know why? Because that means we're going to know each other. It's what he's comforting them with. You're worried about people who have died and they've gone on before. They're asleep. And you're worried that we're going to go up before them or we're going to leave them behind or something's going to happen. He says, no, we're all going to go up together. And we're going to meet the Lord in the air. And then we're going to be with him forever in eternal life. Some might say, well, the idea of eternal life is foolish. I mean, have you seen what happens to a body? And I don't mean to be gruesome, but, but, but have you seen what happens to a body after a person dies? I mean, how is that going to have life? And some people mock at that and they say, oh, you believe in zombies. You know, some people talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Oh, you believe in the, the zombie son of God. No, not at all. Listen to what Paul says. He says, someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? He says, foolish one, what you sow is not made alive until it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as it, he pleases, and to each seed its own body. So he uses the analogy of what's planting a seed in the ground. What happens to that seed when you plant it in the ground? It germinates, but, but here's what it does. It dies, and then it changes form. You put that seed in the ground, and it's a seed, but when it comes up out of the ground, what is it? A plant. 
It's different. It changes, and that's his point. It's, it's that old body that died. That's not what's going to come up. That's not what's going to rise up. There's going to be a different body. And he said, and you need to understand that unless that body is planted, it's not going to spring forth to life. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It's planted in corruption. But listen, it's raised in what? Incorruption. What is incorruption? It doesn't decay. It doesn't age. It doesn't change. It's incorruptible. A new body, a different body, a body that is sown, a fleshly body is sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but he says it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There's a natural body. There is a spiritual body. That's hard for us to understand, isn't it? Everything that we see and experience is natural. And we see natural bodies. And we see natural sickness and natural decay and natural loss of energy and natural aging. But that's all nature. God is not subject to nature. He's not. And the power that Jesus has to give us life, will give us a body that is not natural. It's spiritual. It's like his body. An eternal body. Now, would that be nice? We had a big, long prayer list up here earlier. You know what every one of those prayers is about? Something to do with the body, right? Because that's life. Our bodies hurt our bodies change, they get inflamed, they swell, and they hurt, and, and we get sick, and eventually we die. But at the resurrection of Jesus, that's done. No more. It's all over. And Paul says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all, here's that word again, sleep. But we will all be changed. What's he mean? It's what he's talking about in 1 Thessalonians 4. We're not all going to die. Some are going to be alive when Jesus returns. But he says, even though we won't all die, we'll all be changed. We'll all be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on immortality, and this mortal must put on immortality. We're not going to go to heaven like this. God's going to give us a mortal body, change us, glorify us. And then he says this, And when the corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that was written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, or the grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection is victory. Eternal life is victory. You know, Jesus, when he was on the earth, we, we see examples of him raising the dead. And certainly probably the most popular of, of his uh, raising of the dead was with Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. And, you know, Martha and Mary both said the same thing to Jesus when he got there. Apparently, they'd either been talking about it or both thinking the same thing. But in their mind, they're thinking, Lazarus died because Jesus wasn't here. If he'd have been here, this wouldn't have happened. And so Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, so she doesn't just complain or murmur. She says, but even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus says, your brother will rise again. 
And here's what she said. I know that he will rise again at the resurrection, or in the resurrection, at the last day. Now, why did she believe in her mind and heart that there was a last day where everybody be resurrected? Because she's a disciple of Jesus. And she's learned this from Jesus. I know the day is coming. And so she's putting her focus on the day. Is that what is going to resurrect us? A special day? Mm -mm. You know what Jesus said to her? He said, I am the resurrection and the life. The day doesn't have power. I'm the one who has the keys of life and death. I'm the one who has life in himself from the Father. I'm the one who will resurrect the dead. I'm the resurrection. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Now, this is peculiar. Jesus says, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Well, that, that's crazy. <laughs> I mean, we've seen lots of people who believe in Jesus die, right? Let's not become confused on what he means here. What did Jesus say before they went to see Mary and Martha? Of these things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, that I may go and wake him. You know what they said? Well, if he's sleeping, he'll get better. Jesus said, Lazarus is dead. You know what Paul said? Those who sleep in Jesus, they're sleeping. You know what Jesus said? Lazarus is sleeping. I'm going to go wake him. That's different. See, we live in natural bodies and we see natural processes and we see someone die and we go, well, that's it. It's the end. The end of our interaction, the end of our relationship. It's the end of life. No, it's not. Not for the faithful. Not for those that are in Jesus Christ. They just went to sleep. And Jesus is going to wake them. It's not the end. And we can't look at life that way. Jesus has eternal life. And he says, if you believe in me, you'll never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe that? Going back to John chapter 5, just a little bit earlier, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Now notice verse 25. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those will hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Now that sounds a lot like verse 28 that we just read, right? The hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and come forth. But there's something different about verse 25 and here's what it is. Now is. See, verse 28 is about sometime way in the future. The hour is coming, but here's what he says. The hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. Well, is that two different resurrections? What's he talking about? No, but then, right then and there, people were hearing the voice of the Son of God. And it was giving them life. And I'll tell you, that's true for us today. Eternal life is not just about what is to come. Eternal life is something that God gives to his people when they become his child. Notice what is said, Colossians 2, 12 and 13. Here Paul writes, Buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Notice the tense of the language in which you were raised. Past tense, you were raised with him. 
And notice, you who were dead in trespasses of sin, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. We already have experienced a resurrection. No, not a bodily resurrection, but a resurrection where we, being dead in our sins, have been raised together with Christ to life. And that happens when we're united with Jesus in baptism. God, through his power, performs a work, a work in accordance to our faith, where he raises us from the dead. Romans 6 and 3 or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, this is not a shock to probably 99%, if not 100% of the people in this room. But listen, when we are baptized, what happens is there is a death that occurs. And think back to what Paul said. There's a sowing and a resurrection. Well, here it is. In the waters of baptism, there's something sown and buried. And what is it? The old, corrupt, sinful person. It's buried. And then what happens? Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, we're raised to do what? To walk in newness of life. A death, a death, a death. But after death comes what? life. God did not just wash you from your sins. God gave you life. He breathes into your life. And notice that he says we're made to walk in that new life. It's a picture. It's a uniting with Jesus. You know when Jesus came out of the grave he was different. He came and appeared to his apostles and they doubted. They said no here you're not him. You know, Thomas gets a bad rap. We call him Doubting Thomas because of what he said. But you know what? They all doubted, every one of them. And he said, look at my hands, look at my feet, look at my side. And they still didn't believe him. He said, well, do you have food? I'll eat some food. I'm really here. I'm, I'm not a ghost. I'm really here. But he was different. You know, he just popped up in the room several times where they were standing, just appeared. He was different. Are you different? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Now we use Romans 6, 3 through 6 to talk about baptism a lot and what happens in baptism, the importance of baptism, and rightly so. That's what he talks about. But what was the context of all that explanation of what happened in baptism? It was to get this out of their mind. You think just because God's grace abounded over sin that you could live in sin? He says, what, are you going to continue living in sin that grace may abound? He said, no, that's not the way it works. Here's how it works. You died, and now you're alive, and you're supposed to walk in newness, not walk like you used to walk, not live in the deadness of your sins. You're dead to sin, not dead in sin, a new life. And I'll tell you what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that a lot of Christians believe because they went down in the waters of baptism and came out and were cleansed, that that's all there is to it. And they're going to have eternal life. And they put it on cruise control. They put it on autopilot. And they think that somehow being baptized into Jesus puts some force field around them where sin bounces off of them and can't affect them ever again. And if you believe that, I fear for you. Because that is not the message of the New Testament. He gives us life so we can live. And we can live for Him. We have life now. And He said, I want you to walk 
in that newness, not continue in your sin. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, You were dead in trespasses and sins, and once you walked, now listen, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So again, I know I'm harping on this, but I want us to notice the tense of these verbs that he uses. He said, you once were dead. Not are dead. You were dead in trespasses and sin. He says, you once walked. How'd you walk? You know, this is true of everybody. Everybody. He's not just talking about the Ephesians. And we'll notice that here in a minute. He includes himself in this. He said, you once walked. Well, how did you walk? According to the what? The course of this world. What's the word course mean? It's a way. It's a path. And where's that path lead? Well, who's leading? He says, following the prince of the power of the air. Well, who's that? That's Satan. Why is he called the prince of the power of the air? I'll tell you why. Because look around. His influence is everywhere. It encompasses every single facet of, of this world. He's the one that's influencing the majority of the people in the world. And he said, that's how you used to walk. You used to follow Satan. He says, you used to walk in a way that the world walked. And he said, according to the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedient. You know what they did? They followed and produced the fruits of the spirit. But not the right spirit. This is a different spirit. This is a spirit that works in those that are disobedient. Now listen to verse 3. He says, among whom we all once lived. You see that? You were dead in sin. And when you were dead in sin, he said, you walked this way, and here's how you lived. You lived, and you did what feels good, and you followed the passions of your flesh, you followed the desires of your body and your mind, and you were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Here's the truth. You will not be saved without being baptized. That's the truth. That's what the scripture teaches. That's when your sin's washed away. That's when you're united with Jesus. That's when you're born again. That's when you get new life. But that's not the end. If you go back and you live the same way you always lived and you walk in sin and you follow the nature of your flesh, you're the walking dead. That's what you are, the walking dead. We're supposed to walk in newness. You say, that sure sounds a lot like works salvation. That's not at all what it is. But notice again, he says, you were following the course of the world. You were producing the fruit of worldliness. You lived in disobedience. You lived in their sensual passion. You lived according to their desires. Does that sound like walking in life? It's not. It's not at all. It sounds like living like everybody else. But here's what Paul said. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. That's what he means by dead. Dead. You're dead to sin. Not in sin, to sin. What's that mean? means I don't decide what I do anymore. I don't decide how I look at the world. I don't decide how I process thought about the world. I, I don't decide how I live. I don't decide how I speak. Jesus dictates all that. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And here's the truth. If Christ is living in us, there will be a evidence of fruit in our life. We'll produce 
the same fruits that Jesus produced in his life. He says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 1 John 1 and 6 says this, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. So I just said, it sounds like work salvation, doesn't it? No, it's not. Here's what it's about. It's about fellowship. He who has the Son has life. How do you have the Son? You have fellowship with the Son. Well, how do you know if you have fellowship with the Son? If we walk in the light. We walk with Jesus. We don't walk according to the course of the world. We don't walk according to the prince of the power of the air. We don't live that way. We walk with Jesus. Notice what he said in chapter 2. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly the love of God is perfected in him by this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Now at the first of the lesson, we looked at the very end of this letter. And what did John say? I wrote these things so you could know that you have eternal life. And here's what he said in the letter. Life's in Jesus. It's the life we touched. It's the life we saw. And he says, we have fellowship with Jesus, and we want you to have fellowship with Jesus and with us. And he says, if you walk in the light, you have fellowship with Jesus, and his blood will cleanse you from sin. But what happens if you don't walk in the light? See, this is about fellowship. It's about connection. What was it dependent on? Following Jesus. Walking with Jesus. Keeping the words of Jesus. If you know Jesus... He says, and you walk like Jesus. You say you know Jesus and don't walk like Jesus. This is strong language from John. You are a liar. You're a liar. I know Jesus. What proof is there? What proof is in our life that we know Jesus Christ? Because just reading our Bible and knowing who Jesus is and what he did is not proof of that. He said, I thought this was about eternal life. It is. <laughs> it is about eternal life. But here's what happens. People get sold a gospel of garbage. They get told what God wants to do is he wants to bless you now and here and, and make you rich and, and, and make your health better and, and do all these wonderful worldly earthly things for you. That's not the gospel. The gospel is about transformation. It's a message of changing. It's a message of newness of life. And those that walk in that newness of life will experience eternal life. It's about being conformed to the image of God's perfect Son, you say, I don't, I don't like that word you just used, perfect. I do not like that word. I wouldn't expect you to, but we're warned. Beware, brethren. Who's he writing to? Christians. He says, beware. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Now listen, in departing from the living God. You know what that is? That is a leaving and abandoning of the fellowship with God. You know, people think, well, I think God left me. He certainly did not. If we're disconnected from God, we left. He didn't. But here's the warning. You watch out, lest there be in you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened to the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Why is he warning them? Because he knows 
that if we leave, if we decide to not hold fast our confidence steadfast to the end, we will depart from God. We will certainly go back and walk in sin again. And that is eternal consequences. You say, Ian, you talk about sin all the time. I get sick of you talking about sin all the time. That is offensive. I know it's offensive. That's why I say it. You know why? Because it offends me. When I read the Word of God and it says, don't do this, and I see it in my own life, it offends me. It says, you're wrong. Change. Repent. I know it's offensive. Because that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to exhort one another. We don't need to create some veiled gospel behind a smoke, a cloud of smoke that says, hey, we're all doing great. We're all doing wonderful. No, beware. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Stop being allured by everything that is shiny and wonderful and pleasurable in the world because in Jesus' life, this world does nothing to offer you. You can live your entire life and experience every pleasure that you'll ever experience, everything that will validate every one of your feelings. And at the end of life, the only thing that matters is if you've got Jesus. That's it. And if you take your eyes off of him, that heart, it will change. You know why? Because you're going to be looking at something. And I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a new shiny car. Maybe it's a pornographic image. I don't know what it is, but I will tell you this. It will change your heart to take your eyes off Jesus and put it on something else. And he says, watch out, because that will change you. This is actual footage of me. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> but the other day we were out and I was helping Toya put up. I say I was helping her. <laughs> probably getting in the way, trying to put some Christmas stuff back up in the top of our shed. And I was on the ladder. And I probably spent as much time on the ladder as I have on the ground in my adult life, honestly. I spent a lot of time on ladders. I mean, Dad and I used to put a scaffold in the middle of a 20-foot or 16-foot tall room and put a 6-foot ladder on top of the scaffold. You say, well, that's dangerous. Yeah, I know it is, but I was always careful. So we never got hurt. But I got complacent the other day. I walked out, put this little 6-foot ladder up there, climbed up on about the four steps. I'm about 4 foot off the ground. And I've got a tub of stuff in my hand, and I've got my feet on that ladder firm. And all of a sudden, I had two sheets of Luan over here, and they start falling. And so just out of reaction, I stick my left foot out to push this Luan back, like that's the most important thing at the moment. And all my weight is where? On that side of the ladder. Guess where I went? To the ground. Toy tried to catch me. Well, I got caught by whatever else was over there. How did that happen? Well, you say, well, you're a dummy. You, you, you thought that you could, yeah, that's right, I was a dummy. I wasn't paying attention. That's what happens. It's not, it's, I, don't, I don't believe a lot of Christians come to Christ going, I'm going to get the grace of God, and then I'm going to go out and experience everything in life that's, that's wrong and sinful. What happens? We quit paying attention. We get comfortable. We get complacent. What's he say? Watch out. You think you're standing. You better take heed because you could fall. You know what everybody thinks? Not me. I can't fall. You absolutely can fall. Absolutely. For if after they've escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they're again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. Now notice again, I know I'm pointing this out in every passage, but I want us to all look at the context of who he's talking to. Who's he talking to? He's talking to people who have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He's talking about Christians. And what's he say? Sometimes Christians, they get entangled in sin and they get overcome by it. 
This isn't about committing a sin. We all commit sin. Amen? We all do things that are wrong. This is not about committing a sin. This is about being entangled in sin and overcome by sin. And notice what they did. They turned from the holy commandment delivered to them. That tells us something, doesn't it? Just being a child of God is not going to make us immune to committing sin. We can turn from what God has told us. We can decide, I'm not going to do that. Now, here's what's real interesting. Paul doesn't, or Peter doesn't just leave it there. He says, to understand this better, here's an analogy. It's happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. You got dogs? I'll tell you, there's a reason I don't let dogs lick my face. Because they will put things in their mouth that nobody and nothing should put in their mouth. Now, I'm not judging you if you let dogs lick your face. That's just where I'm at. But that's disgusting. Why would a dog do that? Because it doesn't know any better. It's a dog. Dogs do what? They live by nature. They live by feeling. We all have a nature, a fleshly nature. It's there. We can't ignore it. It's there. And if we follow that nature, what will we do? Return to the vomit. He said, well, I would never eat vomit. I get that. But here's his point. When something is willing to look at vomit and lap it up, something's not right. Something's not right. We had pigs. I never showed pigs. It did not interest me. But my step-siblings showed pigs. And a lot of my friends showed pigs. And I'd watch them. And I'll tell you what I'd see. My stepbrother go out and he'd wash one of those, one of those pigs. And it would go right back. To the mud you know why because it's a pig <laughs> it's a pig so we were over in india and uh in this little town called adoni little village this is about 55 or 60 yards from the church building you know what this is that is an open sewer just running right through the middle of the village that's just how things are and this pig is out there and there's little piglets out there is that where you'd go you know what I didn't see? There were no people in that open sewer. I didn't see that the whole time I was in India. Never saw a person in an open sewer. But there was lots of them. Saw lots of pigs in them. You know why? Because a pig will get down in the sewer. You know what a pig will do? A pig will stick its head in a dumpster and eat what other people have already deemed as this is no longer good, this is rotten, let's throw it away. And a pig will even fight another pig over what's in the dumpster. You know why? Because it's a pig. And so why are we talking about pigs? I'll tell you why we're talking about pigs. Because Jesus talked about pigs and dogs. And he said, don't give what's holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. You know what a dog will do if you try to give it something holy and it's aggressive? It'll turn its nose away and it'll bite you. That's what it'll do. That's what dogs do. Because dogs don't know what's holy and what's not holy. They'll lap up the vomit of life and reject what is good and holy from God. Because they're dogs. You know what a pig will do? A pig will look at a big valuable pearl, the pearl of great price, and it will trample it on the way to the open sewer. And he said, that's what it's like when a Christian turns from the Holy Commandment. They decided, I'm going to be a dog. I'm going to be a pig. I'm going to snuff my nose at what God's trying to give me that is holy and it's good and righteous. And I'm going to tear into people that try to feed it to me. I hope that's not us. I've been there, but I hope that's not us. And I sure hope we're not trampling the pearl of great price that is the kingdom of God on the way back to the open sewer. But that's pigs and dogs. That's why people turn away. 
they forget what's valuable. They forget what is truly from God. And he says this. Look look at the language he uses. Unequally yoked together. What is that? That's connected. Fellowship, a partnership, communion, having in common, accord, unity. What part has a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has a temple of God with idols? What's he saying? God sanctified you. He's made you different. He's made you separate from the world. You know what we do? We look at that and we go, okay, I get that. I'm going to stay away from that. But that's not all he says. You are the temple of the living God. You know why you can't have all this? Because you are the temple, the dwelling place of the living God. Who is God? Who is God? We've been reading the book of Numbers on Wednesday nights. You know what we were noticing? God was very particular about what had to be done before he said, I'll come live in that temple. He said, once you get all this done and you make all the right sacrifices, you get everything in place, then I'll come and I'll dwell right there between the cherubim on the the mercy seat. But only then. And we think it's different. You are the temple of the living God. And what did God say? I will dwell in them. I will walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. God says, I promise, I promise, I will love you, and I'll be your father, and I'll walk with you, and I'll dwell with you. But you have to come out from among them and be separate. That's what the word sanctify means, separate. God cleansed you and made you different, separate from the world. So when we turn and we live like the world, what are we doing? We're denying that God has made us special, that he's made us separate, that he sanctified us. And here's what Paul says. Therefore, having these promises, what promises? I will walk in them, dwell with them, I'll be their God, they'll be my people, I'll be their father, they'll be my children. Therefore, having these promises... Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from filthiness, all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You say, you use that word again? Stop using that word perfect. I can't be perfect. You know what we do? We say, well, I shouldn't have done that, but nobody's perfect, right? Is that true? Nobody's perfect. That's true. Nobody's perfect. And here's what we're doing. We're going, well, you know, you'll have to excuse me. I'm only human. We're looking at it this way. Well, that's not entirely true, though, is it? Nobody's perfect. Is Jesus perfect? He is. And who, who, does, who is it that God tells us we're conforming to? Am I conforming to John, to Jason, to Bill? Bill's a pretty good guy. I might want to. But, Bill, you're not perfect, are you? None of us are perfect. And here's what God says. He says, I want you to be like my son. Look at my son. Let me go... Man, he's, he's perfect. And we go, well, yeah, but I, I think, I'll, uh, think I'll be here because nobody's perfect. And what we, we think what we're doing is being humble. Nobody's perfect. But here's what we're doing. We're taking the standard that God's given us that says perfect holiness, and we're going, okay, well, holiness is about here. And so that's what I think of you, God. Be holy as I am holy. Okay, you're here because that's where I'm at, and that's where I can be. 
Okay, maybe I can be here, but my eyes need to be here. And so I don't excuse what I do because I'm looking here. I look at what I do and I say, okay, that's not right. We're going to change that because I'm supposed to be here. You get the point? Why? Because there is eternal life. It's not here. It's here. This is what we're striving for. And having these promises that God has given us, that should motivate us to reach here, not here. You say, well, a promise is a promise, and God's not going to break a promise. That's right. And there's two types of promises we see. We see God make a promise that has absolutely nothing to do with us, whether or not we obey or disobey or follow or believe. But then we see promises like this that are contingent. It's called a covenant, a covenant promise, where God says, I'll do this if you'll do this. And that's what this is. So Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. You know, I, I don't remember a funeral that I haven't read this at. You know why? Because this is so comforting. So comforting. To think about Jesus has a place for his people. And he says it's a mansion. Now, now whether or not it's a big, giant house or, or whatever, I, I'll tell you what that makes me think of. This is a wonderful place that God has prepared for us. And I want to be there. Don't you? It's okay to nod. Do you, do you want to be in heaven with God? Do you want a place that's been prepared for you? I do too. And you know what Jesus said? He said, you know the way. And Thomas said, Lord, we, we don't know where you're going. <laughs> we don't know where you're going. How, how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way. You want to get to heaven? There's a way. It's Jesus. I'm the truth. I'm the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said there's two ways. And he said, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there are, there are many who enter through it. For the gate is narrow. And the way is constricted that leads to life. And there are few who find it. You know why that way to destruction is broad? You can fit anything you want in there. You can have whatever you want. You can live your life and be a liar and travel that broad way and it's never going to get in your way. You can be a thief. You can go out and experience all the drugs and alcohol and everything this world has to offer. And you can carry it all on that broad way. But I'll tell you who won't be walking in that broad way, that's Jesus. He's not going to leave the light to come walk with you in darkness. He won't do that. He won't stay connected to you. But that path that he made, it's very narrow. It's constricted. You know why there's only a few that find it? Because there's only a few that keep their eyes on Jesus. They get distracted. And they walk off the path. But you know why it's worth it? Because after Paul told them all the glories of the new body and the eternity and the victory, he said, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I'll tell you, I have wasted a lot of time working very hard on things that amounted to nothing. You too? You ever work on something for hours and hours and hours and you got nothing to show for it? That's not the Lord. Why is it worth it to deny ourselves to the pleasures of the flesh? Because it's worth it. 
Every sacrifice that you ever make, every drop of sweat that ever drips from your forehead that is done in the service of God is not in vain. And I'll tell you why. Because there's a crown of glory awaiting. And if that doesn't motivate us, I don't know what will. Eternal life has been handed to us from God. But we've got to decide what we do with it. If you're not a child of God today, if you don't have the Son, I want to tell you, you can live your life and have everything, but if you don't have the blood of Jesus, you've really got nothing. You need Jesus in your life more than anything else. If you're a child of God and you've decided to walk off the path, you know what's great about this analogy that Peter uses about pigs? It's kind of hard to imagine getting in the pig pen with the pigs, isn't it? But Jesus told us about a young man in Luke 15 that did that very thing. And he was actually considering eating with the pigs. But he came to himself. And he went home. You know what the father didn't do? He didn't say, man, you stink. (laughs) You smell like pigs. He said, my son who was dead is alive. Bring a ring and put it on his finger. Bring the best robe and put it on him. Kill the fatted calf because we're going to celebrate. And Jesus said, that's how it is when a sinner repents. There's joy in the presence of God. All the angels rejoice when one person comes home to their father. Come home today as we stand and we sing.